leaders. I'm your coach, Adam. Here to have an honest talk about leadership, the obstacles you might face, and how to refine your leadership skills to help you become the leader I know you are. So let's grab a drink, sit back, relax, and have a chat. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I am joined by Tracy Borellis, the owner of Mode, also known as Management of Data and Evaluation in Edmonton, Alberta. She helps non-for-profit and private business owners solve problems with trustworthy data and help them make the important decisions they need. Welcome, Tracy. Hi, thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for coming on. So I know you work with uh, data and data management. What does that mean? Well, um, sometimes people have data that they're gathering. They don't, they don't know how much they have or they're gathering it on purpose and they're maybe, um, maybe it's getting a little bit messy and they could use a bit of help in straightening it out cleaning it up. Uh, sometimes people are expecting answers from the data that they have that aren't really answering the questions that they have. They don't really know that. Um, and so helping people manage their data means everything right from the beginning of um, figuring out what the question is that people want answered with their data to laying out what a you know what the plan would look like to gather the information that they need to answer that question and um, keep it clean and organized and complete and up to date and then and then analyzing it and communicating the results later on. So there's there's a lot of different things involved in it, but the more you um, have a handle on those different steps, the more trustworthy the results are and the more trust you can have in using it to make decisions. I love it. You've actually said a few things I really want to dive into because I'm just like, what? Trustworthy data? I need to know more about that. (laughs) But I know for many leaders that I talk to, their big focus is collecting data. They're all about collecting data, collecting surveys, collecting information, statistics from YouTube, from big algorithms. My first question uh, that I would actually love to know is like, why would you even collect data? Like, what's the the point of data? There's, um, when I I think about it in a couple of different ways, uh, when you want to gather data, it's to answer a specific question that you would have. And you wouldn't want to gather data that that is not in alignment with answering that question. So if you're curious about what's going on outside of your organization, outside of your business, uh, that could be people who you've never met with yet. They might be, um, let's, so when you use YouTube as an example, the number of people who have viewed your video on YouTube that's uh that's an interesting statistic to look at but it doesn't really tell you anything else about the person on the other side of the app that like they viewed it how do you know who they were what they were interested in what kinds of other questions they might have so there's so there's the stuff that happens on the outside of your business that you have a lot less 
understanding about and a lot less control over. Um, but you know it's going to impact your business in one way or another. So trying to look forward without a crystal ball um, to, uh, you know, what could be impacting your business in the future. Um, that's one way of, of uh, looking for data. And another way is internally. The people that you have interacted with and the mechanisms that do work in your business, the processes and the workflows and the um, the way you build things out those are that's another piece of the puzzle that helps you stay in tune with how healthy and efficient and productive and um and also uh you know all the human things that are going on in there that that keep people interested and keep you working together as a team there's there's all of that stuff that people can gather as well that impacts your business so that's kind of like so i kind of think of it that way right like there's inside and outside there's internal and external so really kind of the first question you got to ask is why am i collecting this data which is mm -hmm. i'm answering a very specific question and then once we figure out what that question is then we're looking at internal data versus external data tell me a little bit more about internal versus external data i know we talked a little bit about it but a little bit more in depth if you don't mind. Um, so external things that have happened outside of your organization or that, that are happening all the time. So uh, keeping abreast of um, new developments in your uh, industry or your sector or, uh, you know, policy changes that might be happening or new inventions that are out there. Uh, so that you can, so that you can make decisions about, let's say, if you're uh, you're looking at your competition, what they're doing um, that might be taking away from your profits or getting people engaged with what they're doing and drawing people away from what you're doing. Um, there's those kinds of things. If you're interested in learning what other people have learned there's lots of other research out there lots of other data that other people have gathered that you might find helpful um it's not necessarily going to tell you how your activities are going to unfold and what kinds of outcomes they'll have but it can tell you what other people are experiencing in gathering you might find that uh, there's there's a lot of information out there and you might find there's not a whole lot and so you and you really have to start gathering your own based on what your own activities are. But for me, that's kind of the external thing. <laughs> so one of those external pieces is looking at what data is everyone else collecting? And then oh, but yeah. if there's nothing, it's like, well, I, I gotta start collecting myself. Yeah. There's another, there's a story I have. This one is related to my son, and it's and it's I, I like this story because it's down to earth and pretty relatable to the average, um, you know, self-employed person trying to figure out what's going on in their business. And he was uh, he was selling firewood locally on Kijiji. He would bag it up and um, deliver it for people. And he thought he had a really good deal. And then when um, and he was doing really well with it. And then when sales started to take a dip, 
he was concerned. And part of his concern when we talked about it was that his competition had a better deal and he couldn't bring his prices down low enough to, um, to beat their prices or take their customers. And, uh, and this, and he thought that was the problem. So we talked about it. And when we looked on Kijiji, which is where he was, that was the platform he was using to sell firewood on and looked at what the, what all his competition were, were selling their firewood for. Um, it was, it was really weird. Everybody's trying to sell a different size of a bag of firewood by weight. And, and, uh, and, and they all had different prices and different sizes and, and it was confusing. And I thought to myself, well, if I was a customer, how would I know who to buy my firewood off of? Like, this is just nuts. And then he told me that the standard in Canada is to sell firewood by volume, not by weight. You sell it by volume. So you look at the size of it, length, width, height, like a cord of wood is a specific length, width, and height of firewood. And when we went back to all of those ads, none of them were selling it by volume. They were all by weight, which is really confusing. So we did the best that we could with all of those ads to figure out if they were selling it by volume, what was the best deal? And not only that, if they were selling it by volume and it looked like a really good deal because you got a heavier bag of firewood for less money, well, who's to say that that's a better deal if the wood is soaking wet? <laughs> so <laughs> there are all these questions. And, uh, and so, so the problem when we figured it out wasn't really that he had he wasn't able to get a better deal on firewood. It was all this miscommunication online about what a good deal on firewood actually is. It's by volume, not by weight. So we got some, a couple of new tools. He already knew how big his bags were by volume. We also got a moisture meter and started tracking how heavy, like how much moisture there was in his firewood. And we measured the weight of the bags and we, told customers on his website what what they should be looking for on a good deal for firewood and not to be thrown by people trying to sell them a heavier bag of firewood because it could be soaking wet. It could be really super heavy to lug around an 80-pound bag of firewood if that's even what it actually weighs. And we will tell you how heavy this or so we'll tell you how heavy the moisture content is on the website. So that you know you're getting this volume of firewood and this is how dry it is. So you'll get a better blaze than, than right? Like, so it left people with less guesswork. And, uh, and so the validation was gathering that data from, from the environment, from all the other competitors, sorting out what the better deal actually was, and then educating customers on on how to buy firewood to get a better deal. And uh, um, he had to, it, it didn't solve the problem with the dip in sales because, uh, because it wasn't about the better, it wasn't about the better deal, obviously. It was, it was a dip in sales because things were changing economically. It was right um, when the uh, CERB money was running out for people. That's when the dip in sales happened. And it also uh, it also shifted things in the local market 
when he started educating people about how to buy firewood, more competitors started picking up things like like the moisture meter so they could tell people what the average moisture reading was for, for that day and selling it by volume instead of by weight. So it had like this these knock-on effects, but it started with looking externally and gathering data about what other what other um, competitors were doing and and then just sort of being a, putting a different message out there was the solution i actually love that where again you like you said you started off externally looking at the competitors and you're answering a question on really why is there this dip in fire sales or firewood mm-hmm. sales and then by using this external data you then went internally and you started measuring moisture content of the firewood. And then you were able to take all that and then put out there, you know, this is this is what quality firewood is all about. Mm-hmm. And then the most hilarious part is the competitors start doing their own data collection of external, <laughs> their <laughs> external competition. They're like, hey, that's a good idea. I'm going to take that for my business. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and it feels like it went full circle. But... But then also what's interesting about that is through this data collection, there's also the realization that the dip in sales, yes, it was partially due to this competition and all this confusion, but it was also due to a completely different factor, which was just CERB running out and people having less money. Yes. So instead of spinning his wheels on how can I make this better, for how can I make a more attractive offer for my clients and get their business back? Um, just knowing that you could have, he could have spent a lot of time spinning his wheels about the price of his firewood when it, it didn't come down to the price of his firewood. Like everybody was still selling their firewood for the same price. And, and now um, with inflation, they're selling their firewood for uh, slightly higher prices, but it's not, it wasn't the price. It was the message. And it was, yeah, like it was, it was the, uh, the economy. So it, it changed things. I thought that was really a cool example. And I think that it's something that um, it, because it's simple and it's small and it's local. And, and I think that that's the way a lot of business owners think, or even in, in the nonprofit sector, people think they make assumptions and they don't check their assumptions. They just keep spinning in this. We can't. We can't get any cheaper. <laughs> we can't. We can't do any more with what we've got. We don't have enough money. It doesn't always come down to that. So how does, because I know assumptions are a very big deal, especially when you get up into these higher leadership levels and you're not checking your assumptions and you're just making bad decisions, or I should say you're making good decisions based off of bad assumptions how how do you check your assumptions when you're looking at data when it's kind of clouding your vision or view of what you're seeing it's hard to get people to check their assumptions and it's more of a personal thing um people people come to a place where they work with 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 a lens with a view of the world through all of the experiences that they've had before and sometimes um leaders come into a position because they've they're good at making snap decisions and 
and sometimes they don't check their assumptions, but they're good at making snap decisions, whether, whether it was risky and they, it was, it wasn't the right decision. They lost a lot of money or a lot of people or whatever resources they did it based on assumptions that they had at the time. And if the information is incomplete or there's a lot of error in it, uh, the risks are higher. And, um, and, and a, and a person coming into a leadership position or, or even, even like we're talking about with my son and his business as a sole proprietor, you come at it with the, with a lot of, um, experiences of your own and then and then you you don't even know what your assumptions are sometimes it's you just you see the world the way it is and you think you know what you know you think that's that's all there is you don't know that there's a lot more there's that saying uh a little bit of information is a dangerous thing (laughs) because it's not all of the information (laughs) that is very true i i think on all those kids that are just getting into college that are just starting to learn about their profession and they think they know it all. And you're like, Oh gosh, this yeah, is, exactly. this is going to be rough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or they did really well at the book learning and then you release them into the field. <laughs> <laughs> I've experienced a lot of people that are very book smart, but mm-hmm. I'm like, Oh gosh, to have you apply this out in the field. I don't know. That's yeah. a, that's a whole nother headache. Yeah. I read something recently and I think it was, I can't, I can't remember where it was, but it, but I read that a lot of leaders get into leadership positions because they make, they make decisions quickly. And a lot of times a person will not get hired into like a CEO position if they're very slow at making decisions. If they take too long ruminating about the data there's not enough data or not enough information or they haven't had enough expertise to consult with and they don't just hurry up and make a decision they actually are more likely to lose um, people's faith in them that they're not decisive enough and they don't last as long in those positions as someone who makes mistakes but makes decisions quickly so there's something culturally about it as well it's not just it's not just like that personal thing that happens. There's, there's something bigger about the way we see leadership and, and how we um, follow, how we decide who to follow, where we follow them to. Well, that's actually so interesting that you say that it's all about that snap decision-making because I immediately start thinking about um, government systems. And for example, a, a dictatorship exceedingly efficient. It's all about one person making snap decisions are they good decisions? We have clearly said, no, these are terrible <laughs> decisions. Thus, the reasons why we don't see uh, dictatorships so prolific in our societies. Mm-hmm. But then you look at democracies and democracies are all about this slow, meandering, gathering data consensus of the citizens. And it's just inefficient to all high hell like let's be honest but everyone's like yeah democracies are actually pretty good and it's that that weird what's the word i'm looking for not dichotomy maybe 
Anyways, it's this this weird little thing where it's like you're looked upon as being decisive and being a good leader if you can make that snap decisions. But out in the real world, it's like, yeah, but those snap decisions are probably bad. And you should slow down and gather more data to make the good decisions. But if you're making if you're being too slow, then people won't follow you. Yeah, right. People are like, that's wishy-washy. I want somebody in that. <laughs> It takes me away from where I am right now. <laughs> but there's, I guess there's like finding a way to fine tune that and, and um, balance how long it takes to make a decision. I can tell you another story of, uh, of something like that, where um, at, uh, at a health center where I used to work, we had, um, it was time to do strategic planning. And to do the strategic planning... Oh, just uh, for our audience listeners, what is strategic planning? Strategic planning is where you... Um, oh, it's a complicated word because strategy and planning are two different things. But when you combine strategy to make a plan, you know, you're looking forward. What, what are we going to do for the next little while? How are we going to get to where we're going? Um it's it's like uh, combining both of those questions and and developing um, a map, like a little map, not a perfect map because you can't see into the future. We don't have a crystal ball, but we we sort of decide what we're going to do, goals maybe, or um, or expand. We might expand what we're doing to reach more people, or uh, just keep doing the same thing it's it helps us make decisions moving forward to have a strategic plan there's a whole process involved and part of that process is gathering information what's going on external to the organization what's going on internal to the organization and are there any gaps that we might need to be bridging is there things we need to say no to more often are there things we need to say yes to more often and in the process of gathering that information for the strategic plan for this organization, um, I was pulling information from a database and, and it looked like in the top 10 chronic illnesses that the staff were working with, a fairly significant number of those were serious personality disorders. And I thought it was shocking that there was such a high number of these personality disorders. And when I presented it to the staff to say like, so does this seem right to you? Because it seems kind of like, I didn't say it seemed kind of high to me, but I wanted to get some, some feedback on that. And they were like, Hmm, it seems kind of low actually. (laughs) I was shocked. Right. So I was double shocked. What do you mean? So so they thought that maybe there was some, some data missing from the database and maybe it had been classified differently. So I went back to find more and I found a little bit more. But when it came time to sit down as a whole group with, with all of our staff in a really big meeting and everybody got a chance to look at all of the different kinds of data that we gather and then, and then do some, you know, some exercises to provoke people's thoughts and their opinions and their expertise on what the situation looked like. One of the things that came out of it was that people felt that there needed to be more clarity and more, um, more attention paid to how 
data and information was inputted into the database. That was one thing that came out of it. But what I thought was a more important thing that came out of all of this was that somebody said, so if we have all of these mental illnesses that we're dealing with all the time, and and clearly we're not putting them all into the database the way we probably should be or could be, uh, who's doing this work? Where's all our mental health professionals? Where we have nurses and we have social workers and we have doctors, where's our psychiatrists and psychologists? And, and so, because when you're looking at, at data and you're trying to figure out what you're going to do moving forward to, do, to fulfill your strategy and make good plans, um, those decisions, uh, you know, sometimes you have information and it, and, and it answers questions, but it, asks, it gets you to ask more questions and dig deeper. So within months, they hired um, a psychiatrist one psychiatrist and got on the journey of bringing in more mental health professionals to complement what the rest of the team was doing, which saved the team from um, having to do the in-depth work, but also it helped uh, the, the patients and the clients who would have had to go off and find somebody somewhere else. And so keeping it all under one roof was really good for everybody kind of building out that whole service model based on Mm -hmm. the data that was collected. Right. Based on the data that was collected, but also because it just, it, it made them think, right. It inspired critical thinking. It inspired strategic thinking. How, like, like what are we doing now that we could be doing different in the future? How could we meet people's needs better in the future? I love that. So I know, you had talked a lot about like just gathering this data for the strategic plan. Mm -hmm. Is there ever a time when you're looking at data, when you're gathering it, you're like, this is not very useful data versus this is, this is actually quite good. I really need this. Uh, Yeah. Like, and how do you even separate out the two? Cause I know there's a lot of leaders out there that are looking at data and going, wow, this is, this is very important data that we need to be paying attention to. When in reality, it's like, no, this is this. You shouldn't be looking at this. Just push it aside. <laughs> I think that there's um, I, again that comes down to assumptions. People people don't know that they need a particular type of data until they have a question they need to answer, and and then they they think that they've got the answer to that question. I'm tr- I'm trying to think of an example. Um, shoot, I'm going to have a hard time coming up with an example, a, a really good one. Maybe it's something like um, addresses, or the um, because sometimes we put things into our databases and then we don't finish it. We we start tapping something in and the form doesn't get completed, or the address is wrong and it's not updated. And this seems like in the moment, it doesn't seem like a big deal. It's one address. We do have 20 people or 30 people tapping addresses um, into it, into a database and 5% of the time or 10% of the time they leave it empty or it's not updated or there's some other errors in it. Uh, 
over the course of a year, depending on how many addresses you're tacking in, that 5% can be really huge, really huge. And it can represent um, logistical problems if you need to reach people by mail or go to their go to their where they're living or get them figure out how much trouble it is for them to get from where they live to where you're doing business. Uh, like stuff like that can cause a lot of problems. And so, so looking at something and thinking um, it's, it seems insignificant. It's, it's important. It's important data, but we don't need it right now. So let's not worry about it too much. Uh, um the, the more you do it over a longer period of time, the more that data goes in over a longer period of time. If you haven't been looking at, at keeping it up to date and accurate and complete, the higher the risks are that it's going to cause you trouble farther down the road and cost you more money um, in terms of resources and uh, time and being able to accomplish what it was you wanted to do. So, so I think, you know, where data is really useful or, or not useful, it's it, again, it's those assumptions we make about whether it's important right now versus important later. So whether that that decides whether we gather it at all or whether we gather it well, whether we organize it well, whether we finish what we started. You know, that's so interesting that uh, you talk about gathering it well, and or even completing it because mm-hmm. this kind of very much reminds me of in the medical industry where we always discuss matters being a very big issue and a matter is anything that is not the if you gave the wrong drug at the or at the wrong time or at the wrong dosage or at the wrong route so if you're supposed to go in your or by a needle and it was given orally that would be considered wrong route or you didn't document it wrong or they, uh, a few other things, but anyways, moving on. It was always interesting because I remember an organization that was really up in arms about the current med errors that we had for the month. We had 10 med errors, but it was, this is where it got interesting. So management and leadership were very up in arms about 10 med errors. But the thing that nobody bothered to ask was, okay, these are 10 reported met errors. What about the unreported met errors? And they had no data on that. They mm-hmm. had no way of collecting that. They had no way of seeing that. And what was interesting with this organization is they probably had within one month, probably closer to about two to 300 met errors every single month, but they only had 10 reported met errors. You see. <laughs> So, I mean, there is, um, this makes me think about the importance of auditing your information and auditing the way information gets captured and recorded and what we ignore and and what we don't and how that links to our culture around our, like, how important that stuff is. And do we take our time to, to record things or, uh, leave it by the wayside for now. Cause I've got more important things right in front of me that I have to take care of right now. And, um, uh, if, if there's, there's so many ways that that could be right. Like if the leadership emphasizes, we're putting out fires all the time, we're putting out fires all the time. We don't have time, 
for the mundane, boring, <laughs> sit down and do your paperwork job, <laughs> do your data entry. Um, talk about when you're making mistakes or not even like, like a full-blown mistake, but geez, I'm having trouble uh, getting my medication at the right time, the right place to the right person and the right dose and the right uh, method of getting it, getting them to take it. They're like, they're, they're, it's so complex. There's so many people and different values and different assumptions and involved that it, it, it's easy for something like that to go off the rails unless you've put a priority into uh the communication and how we talk about problems and how we record it and, and keep up with it. Well, and that goes back to our original, well, why are we collecting this data? What is the question we're trying to answer? And then on top of that is that priority. Is this even important? Mm-hmm. Like if this isn't important, then we're not going to, we're not going to care about it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's so interesting. Very interesting. That's a really great example, actually. That's a real, I like that example. Thanks for sharing that. It, I always just found it hilarious because, again, they were all up in arms. I'm like, you don't even, you haven't even glimpsed at the entire mountain. You're looking at like this one boulder at the bottom of the mountain. You're like, look at this boulder. This boulder should be here. I'm like, this entire mountain in the way, mate. <laughs> but again, it kind of comes yeah. back to the issue of like, they weren't asking the right questions and it wasn't a priority. And they didn't have the systems in place to kind of capture even a portion of the mountain that they were facing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So how did, how did safety, how did medication safety fit into the priorities of every day of, of working there, right? Like every day there's medication going to how many different people in how many different ways, how many different times and <laughs> like, how did safety fit into that? Was it a priority? Could, or was it some, what was the, what, what was trumping that all the time? It's hard to say. That's very you true. You could probably say, but. Yeah, I could have said it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Safety was third. <laughs> it definitely wasn't first. It was very interesting. <laughs> but that's actually something I wanted to dive into a little bit because when it comes to medication errors, Typically speaking, even if you try to capture with data uh, or put these systems in place to try to capture these things, people don't report it because there's always this worry of blame. They don't want to get blamed. They don't want to uh, have their careers or jobs harmed in any way. So they don't, mm. which gives creates this incomplete data that you're now forced to work with, which then c- begs the question of is is this useful? Is this accurate data? So how do you kind of overcome that hurdle when you're faced with an issue like that? Well, in my experience, it comes back to organizational culture that if there's not an interest in learning together how to do and improving things together um, and being sort of forgiving about the idea that we all make mistakes and uh and 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 i think teaching each other 
you know, and being able to ask questions and figure things out together, that that's a cultural thing that, um, that I think that I think you're right. It's really hard to get people to feel safe about saying I I made mistakes. Um, to, to do that in private one-on-one with someone you trust is one thing to be able to put it in writing in a, in a database somewhere is, is something else too. So, uh, those are big hurdles to get around. And, and I mean, talking about how we're, we're learning together, we're, we need data so that we can learn how to do things better, constantly improve, even the little things, the little things, catching mistakes. Oh, if you made a mistake, maybe I made a mistake too. So how can we like go back in the last week and look at how many mistakes we made in the last week? Are we missing something? Do we need to be on the ball a little bit better? with with the kind of mistakes we're making is the is it one type of medication error that we're making or are we like sort of is it shotgun all over the place every kind of error imaginable is being made <laughs> or is it just like a certain type of um situation where it's getting to be problematic and we need to put something else in place i i think it's a cultural thing where where people where people need to feel comfortable um, in the social environment of the workplace to be able to say there's there's mistakes happening and like how can we track this let's keep it written down let's keep let's keep the space open in the uh, in the database where we where we park it all where we keep putting it maybe because we're going to work on it and we have a lot of faith in ourselves to solve these problems and um, make improvements and rectify rectify our record or safety record you know there has to be some positivity there and some goals and people willing to um, be open about not 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 just making mistakes but also um being able to improve next time I, i love how you said that being open to making mistakes but more importantly to improve it. So it really doesn't happen again. Mm-hmm. Or if it does, we, we have a place where we put all this stuff down and we can remember what we did to fix it. So we can fix it again and then work harder again at making sure we don't forget what we did to make, to make things better. Exactly. And it's always interesting because in chit-chatting with you, it kind of reminds me of uh kind of going back to the medication error that this company that I was uh, working with, if they had created a priority around safety and had made it very clear that they did not care about blame and they were just interested in collecting data, they would have created a much more accurate kind of picture of what was going on. And then to kind of go back to what we were talking about early in the day, because they hadn't done that, they made assumptions on the data and the assumptions of the data was, we're safe, we're fine, we're okay. It's actually the individuals making the errors that are the problem, not the system involved, which yeah. kind of blew my mind. <laughs> right? The, and the thing, like, as you're just talking right now, I'm like, the thing about assumptions is that it eliminates the possibility of curiosity. and and data collection and analysis is nothing without a sense of curiosity to begin with. So if you're never curious about 
medical errors or or um, what your what your what your customers are looking for or what kind of uh, services you could put in place to help people in need. If you're never curious about that, then there's no point in gathering the data about it at all. In fact, you could have mountains of data there and nobody's even looking at it because you're not even curious. So the assumptions that you have in your head, which can become a cultural thing, you might think that you're all like um, doing a fine job with medication, or you might think that you've got you you've done um, you've, you're still doing a stellar job by selling your firewood by weight instead of by volume. You you just you're not curious, and you won't use that data that you've got. You won't use the data that's out there. Well, and I mean, let's be honest. Going back to your son with firewood, the fact that you guys were curious brought you to many different conclusions than what your original assumption was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so how do you become curious around data? When you're, when you start collecting all these numbers, all these blips and blops, and you're looking at it, how do you stretch your mind and become just curious to start looking at it in different ways? Uh, I think it's a, a muscle you have to exercise. <laughs> there's day, there's days when when you you could be curious, but it's like if I open that door and start asking questions, <laughs> how much time am I going to invest in sorting through it? And where is it going to get me anyways? It's a lot of work, a lot of trouble. Am I going to make people angry? <laughs> You can be curious, you can, but sometimes also that the result is you have some responsibilities at the end of the day. If you're curious about safety and medication issues, you might be tackling that on a regular basis all the time. But if all of a sudden you have like 10 errors in one day and you go, okay, well, let's, let's get more curious and find out how many there actually are, then you find out that it's 10 times as many as you found like that were brought to your attention in the first place. You have a huge responsibility to do something about that. (laughs) So being curious, being curious comes with some consequences and, but it's a muscle you have to exercise, but do it judiciously. (laughs) Great Great curiosity comes with great responsibility. I think it does because you come up with things that are closer to the truth than your wild ass guessing. And, and with, with the truth, you, you do have responsibilities. Now you have to either change your own behavior or help people change their behaviors. Like, like, what do you do with that? When you realize something is, is not in alignment with what you thought was true. What do you do with that? When all of a sudden you collect this data, you see something's a little bit weird. You ask some more questions. You go down the rabbit hole and you look, oh, oh, this is a big Uh problem. It's a problem. Now now you have a little bit of a responsibility to that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, it's, it's, but it's definitely something where you just, you change your mindset a bit, a bit at a time. Well, like I had a professor one time in a philosophy class where I said something out loud that was according to my own experience. And I made a generalization 
And um, at the time, I didn't understand what the problem was with that. But uh, when I said it out loud, he very pointedly said, is that true? <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> is it? <laughs> it's not fun when your professor calls you out. And you're like, oh, gosh. <laughs> In front of the class, right? But the curiosity about is that true has, is something that has stuck with me for a long time. Is that true? How true is that? When somebody says something or you read something or uh, or you or you look at you look at the numbers and you go, huh, how true is that? There's lots of ways to determine how true something is. You can get really technical about it, really precise. I mean, you don't have to have a lot of precision to make to make um, day-to-day decisions or even big decisions. You can you can see something and go, yeah, I, my gut tells me, or that's been validated in a number of different ways. I can make decisions with that. But being curious starts with just asking questions. And a great one to start with is, is that true? How true is that? Is that true? And how true is that? The first mm-hmm. question. And I mean, <laughs> let's be honest. If the answer is no, that's not true. Then that just opens the door for so many more questions. For sure. Maybe it's not true this time, but maybe it's been true another. Maybe it's only true five out of ten times. So interesting. <laughs> but if you're really curious, you can find out how many times that's true out of a hundred or a thousand or a million. You know, this honestly kind of reminds me of every detective story I've ever read. Of the detective <laughs> starting with a simple question. She's just like, Where's the girl? She's disappeared. Where is she? And next thing he knows, he's neck deep in a cult with like eldritch <laughs> horrors for the cosmos. And yet, no, he doesn't know what, how he got there, but he's there now and he needs to figure out what's going on. And then yeah, the right? question is like, is this, was it true that she disappears? Like, yes, but also no. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh. And then the other questions begin to cascade. If she did not disappear, where is she? How did she get there? Why did it happen? When did it happen? <laughs> exactly, right? All those other questions. So many questions. Uh, and I think detectives and private eyes are just fabulous at just opening that box and just being curious and just following yeah. leads. Don't make assumptions. You'll get stuck. Don't make assumptions. Or check your assumptions. Figure out what you're assuming. As soon as you think you've got it figured out, ask yourself how you know. How true is that? Hmm. So if somebody is just looking at starting to collect data, they they're like, "Hey, this is actually kind of kind of good." I, I have a question to, I want answered, whether it be. Uh, how to make more profit, how, whether it's how to get more clients into my business, whatever. They have a question and they want to start collecting data on that question. How would they even start? Well, the context matters a lot because they might have, they might, they might have, um, they might be just starting out in their business and they have assumptions about whether their their idea of a product or a service they 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 figure that's a really great idea and so they you know when um people put the cart before the horse uh 
the first the first thing you want to do is make sure that people actually need that service, want that service, they're willing to pay for that service and and do it now, not 15 years from now. So um, gathering data in that context is going to be different than somebody who's been at it for a while and had paying customers or people coming to you for services and help. And you and you've been doing business, but not actually gathering data. So once once you know what the question is and the context is, then the method changes, and it can change for every single situation. And you can use there's so many different tools and um, opportunities out there for ways to gather it and use it and analyze it. That it like I wish I could give like a blanket statement. This is how you get started. But it really depends on um, where you're at and what your question is. So that, I think the best thing, there's there's resources online that have to do with research questions and how to answer them. If that gets really tricky, a person can find a, a scientist or a student or a researcher or an evaluator. There's all kinds of people out there who do this for a living. And, or someone and, like you. Someone like me. There's lots of us out there. Literally consult businesses and non-for-profits and help them kind of organize all of this. Yeah, find find out where you're at. Meet you where you're at, and which I've stolen from <laughs> our reduction community. <laughs> Meet people where they're at with their data collection and help them get their heads around what it is they're doing and what they want to answer and be a little bit be a little bit curious and uh, and help them get the right data to answer the actual question as accurately as possible. So I guess, so for myself, when I think about collecting data, I'm often a little bit confused because like in the back of my head, I know that there's surveys. Surveys are a tool to collect data, Mm -hmm. but is, is data just any information? that you just can get and then you just have to compile it and then look at it? Or is it just a set of pre-programmed tools of like, you know what, I'm just going to put this survey out there. I'm going to do a focused group out there. I'm going to just look at uh, a spreadsheet that somebody has created and these pre-programmed set of tools that they just look at and like, yep, this is how we collect data. Or is is it just any information collected? Well, for I think it's it could be any information and it could be different tools, but data is information that's gathered together and organized in a way with some structure around it so that it can be um, accessed and or and analyzed to um, answer the specific questions that it was gathered to answer in the first place and the tools the tools are less important uh in the way that you organized it it's no I I think I said that wrong the tools are important because you want it at you want it organized in a way that doesn't increase more work later to to get the analysis out so that it's easier to figure out but there's a lot, there's lots of tools. There's as many tools out there as you, you can shake a stick at. 
And there's as many different kinds of information that you could use as data, as long as it's answering the question that you have about about it. You could, you know, a lot of people use the word data and statistics interchangeably. They think of the word data as something numeric. And it could be something that came out of a survey, or it could be something that came from a pile of photographs. Like, like it could be that wide ranging. It could be a diary that somebody wrote in by hand and you got a a stack of them and you look at how, how the subject matter changes in the diary over time. Data can be something that you, um, you know, you experience firsthand and you have all these observations and you take down notes and, you know, you call them field notes. That's, that can be data because it can be included in your analysis. It, it, it can be a lot of things. So it's really kind of more of that purposeful collecting of information for a very specific reason with a structure around it. Mm-hmm. And then there's a million different tools out there. That can kind of help you. But really, when it comes to the tools, it's the right tool for the right job. Yeah. Don't use a screwdriver when you need a hammer. Yeah. And and start with things like if you're asking a question, the difference between how many and how something happens, those are two completely different questions. I wouldn't answer a question about how something works or how something happened by saying by by asking people um, a lot of multiple choice questions. I, if I wanted a deep dive in how something works, I would I would talk to people who have a lot of experience and who are able to articulate how something works or, or what their experiences were with with a service or a product. I'd want to talk to people about that and get the conversation recorded somehow. So the conversation about their experiences is one thing, how you, you know, like answering the question of how they felt or how they experienced it is is not going to be a numerical answer unless you have millions of people with the same kind of answers. This very much reminds me of, I, I was privy to some data reports and I'm looking through as a survey that was sent out. And leadership was discussing how we need to work on a few of these issues. And the majority of servants or the people that they had surveyed had said that they had, they would like to know more about falls and fall prevention. And they also requested that they want to learn more about health. Huge swaths of individuals, 70 to 80% were saying that. And the leadership was saying, you know, we need to, we need to get some information out there, but then to kind of go back to your point, you know, this multiple choice test or this multiple choice questionnaire kind of gave them this brief idea, but then you needed another tool to get into the nitty gritty of it. Cause then the question arises, okay, if we're going to get into falls, like how are these people falling? What time of year are they falling in? what are the circumstances that these falls are occurring that they, that this is actually a big issue for people? Cause generally speaking, when you look at people walking around, you're like, yeah, you're not going to fall. You're pretty good. <laughs> and it, when we looked at the, the market, the target market or that we were surveying in, it was people that were 18 to 30. 
which again begs the question of 18 to 30 year olds don't fall. So why are they falling? Like, why do they want to know more information about falling? So many more questions that we, to use a different tool, like you were saying, would be to bring them in and just interview them. Yeah. What are you interested in? Oh, falling. Why is that a, why is that a thing? And and how did that pattern come about in the first place? That's the other thing about data is you're looking for patterns. So if you started interviewing a bunch of people um, one-on-one and falling came up once or twice, and then you decided to put it on a survey asking people if they wanted to know more about falling, well, what did they say exactly in the interviews that made you think it was something to put on a survey later? What, like, what was the conversation around around falling like how did that come about and what like what were they actually talking about what was that conversation actually um conveying back and forth between the person who was talking and the person who was doing the interview it's really it that's an example of putting the cart before the horse when you say they put out a survey well i'd want to know like why like why was falling on the survey in the first place and who this demographic was and and uh why, why didn't they do some interviews first to dig deeper into what that demographic wanted to know more about? Maybe if you'd asked them one-on-one, they'd have come up with something completely different. And if you asked a whole bunch of people the same questions, a pattern would have developed. And you might've found that you might've found that they were concerned about falling because something happened in the news recently, or there's some weird health information out there saying that people 18 to 34 are at risk of I don't know, some kind of something or other later in life because they had a fall at this point in their life. Who knows? Or it might be that the person who was asking the interview questions was an expert in fall injuries <laughs> and steered the conversation towards falling. <laughs> and then naturally they're like, yeah, I'd love to know more about falling because you seem like a fall injury expert. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it's just that's so interesting. It's just always asking that question why and digging deeper and deeper and deeper to kind of get to the root of the answer. Find the patterns. Yeah. Figure out why people are talking about this. And um, I mean, before you go to all the trouble of asking a whole bunch of people a lot of questions on a survey that and then you limit their choices of answers when you when you develop a survey right it, you limit the answers that people can give so something that i'm always kind of curious on if, for example with the survey let's kind of go back to it would be the type of people answering the survey i know that the population that this company was serving was closer to about two to three thousand people and yet the respondent rate was about i believe 200 and they wanted to know about falls, which begs the question of like, how how do you determine how important and how useful this information actually was? Oh, so you have to have an understanding of how the um, the respondents represent the general population. The sample of people that you drew. Uh, voluntarily chose to answer the survey and a lot of people voluntarily chose not to. So understanding the difference between what made 
those people different from the people who didn't answer the survey is pretty important. And you should have asked questions related to their demographics and their experiences in life and what their relationships were to things like falling or other kinds of health concerns. You'd want to know that. Um, you want to know enough information about the whole entire population to be able to say with a certain amount of um, confidence that the sample of people who responded to the survey represented, fairly represented the general population before you, before you made, came to the conclusion that everybody, that, you know, that most people really do want to know about something like falling versus other kinds of health information. That's that's a really good question. Yeah. Cause, cause statistically for that to be relevant to the general population, you need to know that the people who answered the survey were um, uh, a good sample that they represent, that they were the same demographics, the same kinds of experience, same kinds of um, places in life and, um, professions and socioeconomic backgrounds and all kinds of stuff to know to know that they're kind of the same people. Interesting. And then at that point, we're using different tools than what we currently mm-hmm. used, and we're being mm-hmm. curious. And we're asking more questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we were to kind of wrap up a lot of what we talked about today, and just just a couple of useful bits and bites for our budding leaders around business and just data, whether they be for non-for-profit or whatnot, what, what would be the major takeaway that you would want for them around just data, data collection and the whole shebang? <laughs> um, be curious, check your assumptions. Um, Look at what's available and what's handy, because I, I don't think that it's um, it's necessarily wise to develop a whole big strategy and then find out that you answered the wrong question that you had. So be very thoughtful about the questions that you have and and uh, and how you actually answer those questions. I love I, it. I think that's it. Yeah, be curious and be careful. Be curious, be careful, ask questions, check your assumptions. Yeah, yeah, gather your data and then and then check with other people also. I think that's another thing that people do. They, they assume that they've got the right data and that it's all good. And then they don't check in with anybody else to see if it sounds right. You need to validate it somehow so, so that you know that it's kind of right. Like the story about the health center where they... I, I thought that's really high. And they said, no, that's not high enough. Check your assumptions about, about what you're gathering. And for individuals that are ready to make the leap, they're like, you know what? I need help just organizing all this data that I got from my organization. Or they aren't even collecting data, but they know they should. And they want to reach out or f- start following you. How would they go about doing that? Well, they can follow me on LinkedIn, Tracy Borelli, and uh, my my business name is Mode. Um, but you can also uh, check my website, which is modevaluation.ca. And uh, those those are the two best places to find me. Reach out and ask me specific questions. 
I can spend half an hour, no cost to, to you at all to start sorting out um, what your, what your needs might be and maybe even point you in the right direction. if it's something that I can help you with or something you can do yourself. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And uh, I'll see, I'll talk to you later. And for you, dear listeners, I will hope you join me for the next episode. Take care. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, give it a like, and share it with a friend. And if you're ready to take the next leap and improve your leadership skills, head over to www.seedingthelead.com and book your free coaching session today. Thank you.